Hi, listeners. You can now listen to this community podcast production ad-free on Apple Podcasts and access the podcast one week early and get exclusive bonus content. Just hit the subscribe button now on Apple Podcasts. Or if you want access to all of the above, plus video versions of the podcast, head to patreon.com forward slash stop the killing. On the morning of August 1st, 1966, shots ring out from the observation deck of the clock tower on the University of Texas campus. It marks the infamous beginning of the modern era of mass shootings in America. I'm Sarah Ferris, true crime podcaster. And I'm Catherine Schweit, the former head of the FBI's active shooter program. And you're listening to Stop the Killing. A little note before today's episode, this is a bonus episode that would normally be for Patreon subscribers and Apple subscribers exclusively. But we think the Idaho 4 case, well, it's just had so much press, both nationally and internationally, that we wanted to make it available for everyone just for this week, for reasons that will become apparent in the episode. We'll also be recording update episodes on the case in the future, so do make sure that you've subscribed on Apple or Patreon to get exclusive access to those. And while we're talking about Patreon, big shout out to our newest members, Colleen Dunn, Kathy Jesdema, and Michelle Skinner. I hope I've pronounced all those correctly. And as always, if you are wanting to get access to ad-free bonus content and exclusive early access to episodes, then go to Apple and Patreon or just click the links in the show notes. Welcome to another episode of Stop the Killing. Catherine has, well, she's gone on holiday. So my lovely guest, Jodine, has been lumped with me. But I feel like I'm getting a little bit of a Catherine replacement because you too are retired FBI, aren't you, Jodine? Yes, I am. I retired from the FBI as a special agent in 2020. I worked for the FBI for 22 years and worked a variety of investigations to include international terrorism, domestic terrorism, and complex financial fraud cases. I do have a podcast. It's called Caught in My Web on Patreon. It covers mysteries, murders, and cases capturing my attention. And pretty much we cover all the top true crime cases in the headlines around the world. And that's five days a week on Patreon. But then I also write psychological suspense novels and hope to have my first one out by the end of the year. Let's talk about a case that... You know, we touched on it before we hit record, a lot of press, not just in America, but it hit the headlines globally as well. Yes, this case is typically referred to as the Idaho College murder case or the Idaho 4 case. And what it involves is four college students at the University of Idaho in Moscow, Idaho. It is a very picturesque college campus in northern Idaho. Very agricultural around this small town, very close knit. And in the early morning hours of November 13th, 2022, four college students were murdered at a location at 1122 King Road in Moscow, Idaho. Now, this house had many female residents at it at the time. One was named Madison Mogan. Another was Zanner Kornodal. 
a woman named Kaylee Gonzalez had just moved out of that residence. She was back visiting for that weekend. And then there were two other roommates, Bethany Funk and Dylan Mortensen. And those five were residing at this location. Now, Zanna Kernodal, one of the residents, she had a boyfriend by the name of Ethan Chapin. Ethan was a member of a fraternity, the Sigma Chi's, who lived right down the street. He was spending the night over at this residence at 1122 King Road. And what we know is based on the probable cause affidavit. That's a court document that lays out law enforcement's probable cause to believe the perpetrator that committed these crimes did in fact commit these crimes. And so what is laid out in the probable cause affidavit is that shortly after 4 a.m., law enforcement believes the perpetrator entered the residence at 1122 King Road. It is believed he entered through a second floor sliding glass door. From there, it is still unclear exactly which victim was first stabbed to death, but we believe it was one of the two females located on the third floor of this residence. And that is based on the fact that a knife sheath containing DNA was found under the body of victim Madison Mogan. Kaylee Gonzalez was also murdered up on the third floor. On the second floor, the bodies of Zanna Kernodal and Ethan Chapin were eventually discovered on November 13th, 2022. And so therefore, we had four fatalities within the house and then the two surviving roommates. One of the roommates, Bethany Fung, her bedroom was on the first floor of the residence. And then the other surviving roommate, Dylan Mortensen, her bedroom was on the second floor. And there's been a lot of attention on Dylan Mortensen because of what is mentioned about her in the probable cause affidavit, specifically the fact that shortly after 4 a.m., she heard a lot of commotion up on the third floor and she thought it was Kaylee playing with her dog. Well, she looked out her door, didn't see anything, but felt something out of the norm. Then closed her door, and then a few minutes later, thought she heard crying, and she thought she heard someone say, there's someone here. She thought she heard crying from Zanna Kronodal's room. She looked out, closed the door. Then a third time, she opened her door, and on that third peak outside of her bedroom door on the second floor, she saw a mass person walking from the direction of Zanna Kronodal's bedroom out towards the glass sliding door. She described that individual as dressed all in black, physically fit, and having bushy eyebrows. And the bushy eyebrows was a very key detail. Why do you think this has garnered so much attention? It is a horrific case, but, you know, you've covered a lot of these cases. Well, I do think certainly, you know, this is very reminiscent for those of us in America to Ted Bundy when he committed murders in a sorority house down in Florida. And certainly, you know, when you send your children away to college, you just never dream of getting this horrific phone call that they've been stabbed to death. 
in their residence in the middle of the night. So that would be every parent's nightmare. And then, of course, we've got the slasher films like Scream, where you have a serial killer who breaks into the house and commits such an atrocity. So I think all of that certainly raised the interest, the fact that there was so much tragedy and this was so gruesome. But then it was about seven weeks before an arrest was made. And so this case was kind of a whodunit that took over the internet and many chat rooms sprung up and people were posturing theories and speculating and comparing notes and information and tidbits. And they wanted justice in this case. People were upset that these four lives were just so brutally and savagely taken and that these four young people with so much promise were robbed of their future. And so I think that really generated not only an interest here in America, but globally. And certainly then when it turned out that it wasn't someone at the food truck or an ex-boyfriend, the fact that there wasn't a close connection on the surface level between the perpetrator and one of these victims, that in and of itself has piqued everyone's interest. Everyone is waiting with bated breath to find out why was this house selected? Why were these victims selected? Which one of the victims was the primary target? What was the connection? Because like I said, it's not that this was a disgruntled ex-boyfriend who had been dated for five years that suddenly snapped. This appeared to be a very premeditative case of potential stalking based on what we know from the probable cause affidavit, where the perpetrator is alleged to have been near the proximity of the crime scene at least 12 times prior to the homicide. Why this house? Why these victims? And particularly to the people in Moscow, Idaho, this is a very populated area on street community. It's right off campus there. Homes and apartment buildings are essentially right on top of each other. We know from the probable cause affidavit that a video camera was seized from a nearby residence. That camera was allegedly 500 feet from Zana Kernodal's bedroom. So that gives you some sort of idea of how close these homes were and how close other people were to where these vicious crimes took place. And it's just stunning to think that it happened right in the heart of this community. Not being able to see the enemy coming or make those connections, I think, are the scariest crimes. But, you know, you've been in the FBI. How common are those kinds of murders that we see? I wouldn't say they're normal. Typically, you know, murders are committed by someone that you know. And so when you're talking about just a random serial killer out there, that certainly piques the interest. And then you add on to it the college aspect to it and that these are people's children. And then the fact that two of the victims had other siblings that were attending university at that campus. Another one, Zana, her sister was 10 minutes down the road at a college in Washington because Moscow is right on the border of Idaho and Washington. So, you know, three out of four of these victims had siblings either on campus or nearby. 
So you're talking about close family members who, you know, were right there. It's just heartbreaking, really, when you think that they have to go back to that campus and see that home and remember what happened there. It really is just just tragic all the way around. You mentioned that there were, I think, six people that lived in the house. Was everybody present that evening? At the time the homicides took place, there were four females actually still living in the residence. Kaylee Gonzalez had recently left. She was going to move to Texas and graduate and take on a new job. And so she was back in Moscow that weekend just to visit her four former roommates. So in the house residing there at the time of the murder were Madison Mogan, Zana Kernodal. They, of course, were two of the four victims. And then the two surviving roommates, Bethany Funk and Dylan Mortensen. Ethan Chapin, as I mentioned, was Zana Kernodal's boyfriend, and he was sleeping over the night of the homicides. Here's what we know, and it is quite fascinating. From the probable cause affidavit, we know that a white Elantra, that's a white car, was seen driving down King Road, attempting to park in front of the residence shortly after 4 a.m. Now, of interest is that a DoorDash driver had just been to the residence delivering food for Zana Kernodal. We know Zana Kernodal was awake after 4 a.m. because law enforcement did obtain their cell phone records and was able to determine that Zana had been on TikTok after 4 a.m. So it is believed, based on what is in the probable cause affidavit, that she was up eating this food that had been delivered by DoorDash and online on TikTok. When the perpetrator in the white Elantra attempted to park out front and then eventually wrapped around behind the residence and parked in the Queen Road area. Sometime between 4 a.m. and 4.20, the perpetrator entered the residence. It is believed that the victims on the third floor were most likely the first victims attacked because of the fact the knife sheet was found up next to Madison Mogan's body up on the third floor. She and Kaylee were found on the third floor. Then Zana Kernodal and Ethan Chapin as well. The white Elantra is seen fleeing the scene at approximately 4.20 a.m., And what is of note is that where the residence is in Moscow is about a 10-minute straight-shot drive to the perpetrator's residence in Washington State. However, the Elantra did not take that straight route. It went on a very circuitous route for about an hour and 10 minutes and went south of Moscow, Idaho, into rural parts of Idaho and made a very peculiar route, and then eventually navigated back to the residence of the perpetrator in nearby Washington. Now, what's interesting is that the cell phone of the perpetrator, law enforcement can see that that cell phone left the perpetrator's residence approximately shortly after 2.30 a.m., headed in the direction of the crime scene. It was casing the neighborhood for about an hour prior to the homicides. That cell phone goes into airplane mode 
just prior to the time of the killings. It is in airplane mode during the time that law enforcement believes the murders were committed. And then while the Elantra is going on that circuitous route south of the city of Moscow, so is the perpetrator's cell phone. It comes back on out of airplane mode and then it pings towers and law enforcement was able to piece together the movement of that cell phone matches in sync to the movement of the Elantra. So when the cell phone is pinging towers, there are also video cameras that are picking up the movement of the Elantra and tracking it. So that together is very strong circumstantial evidence against the perpetrator. In addition to the DNA that was found on the knife sheath that was left up on the third floor under Madison Mogan's body. Wow, some incredible investigative work, isn't it? This whole idea of being able to pin a case around cell phone towers pinging. Definitely. And the premier analysis is done by the FBI's cellular analysis survey team. They not only will triangulate those signals from the cell phone to the various towers and be able to tell you, okay, the strength of the signal to this tower is X and the strength to this tower is Y and be able to triangulate that. But they will also look at the geolocation data contained on the phone. They will be able to see coordinates. Where was this phone? They'll be able to drill down via the apps on the phone, through Google on the phone. There's all sorts of technology. Did that phone connect to Wi-Fi anywhere? All those things will come out at trial. And so therefore, the cell phone is one of the things that the defense attorneys for the perpetrator are targeting. They want that evidence tossed or suppressed. Additionally, they want the DNA suppressed with genetic genealogy that was utilized to create the family trees that led law enforcement to a suspect. The defense is challenging that. They also want to challenge the determination that the white car was, in fact, an Elantra. At first, the FBI analyst who determined it was an Elantra thought it was a 2011 to a 2013. Right. It then was changed to expand to a 2015 to 2016 model. In my experience, I don't think that's going to be a fatal differentiation. I think certainly the defense will attack it. Why didn't you get this right the first time around? But I think when eventually jurors are shown these video images of cars flying by and just, you know, the lighting conditions and the weather conditions and all the things that can hamper video recordings, I think they will be amazed that an examiner was able to determine that the car in question was in fact in an Elantra and that they were so close in determining the exact model year. Uh, You mentioned in their familial DNA for the listeners that aren't familiar with it. Give us an explanation of how familial DNA was used to link the perpetrator in this case. Yes. So there was DNA found on the snap of the knife sheet. And so what they did, law enforcement, is they sent that to a laboratory. 
And they ran that DNA through the CODIS, the Combined DNA Index System, to see if perhaps the perpetrator was a convicted felon and that had a criminal history. When there was no matching CODIS, then they began their testing and they were able to determine it was male DNA. Well, from there, what they utilized was investigative genetic genealogy. And what investigative genetic genealogy allows you to do is to take your DNA sample and go to specific genetic genealogy companies and compare it to their databases that contain DNA from people who participate in various DNA companies and services in order to find out about their ancestry and their heritage. By comparing it to those databases, you can determine ancestors of the perpetrator. And essentially what they do is they build family trees. Now, if you're lucky enough, you can determine both the mother's side and the father's side of the family through your DNA sample. And then you look for who in the mother's side and who in the father's side got married. And then how many male children do they have? Well, in this case, the family trees led them to the perpetrator's family. And then what law enforcement did was they conducted surveillance. And they waited for trash to be put outside the residence of the perpetrator's family's home. And then through a water bottle that was connected from the trash, law enforcement tested that water bottle and was able to determine that the DNA on the knife sheath was left by the son of the person whose DNA was on the water bottle in the trash. So therefore, they knew The person on the water bottle was the father of the suspect. So how many sons did that father have? He had one. So therefore, they were able to zoom in on the person, the suspect, who is now in custody. Once the perpetrator was arrested, a buckle cheek swab was taken of his DNA. And then that was compared to the DNA on the knife snap. And that came back as a one in 5.3 octillion being consistent as a match. So more than the global population. So when the scammer uses the hypnotic method of building rapport, then they create dysfunctional, delusional reality. That's how a scam begins. Convincing the mark that it makes perfect sense to hand over their money to a con artist. The Scams and Cons podcast tells you how scams are run. You'll hear how people are convinced to buy fake art, buy machines that print money, or steal your house. I get a phone call from my wife and she let me know that they had decided to move all our stuff out. I can no longer do anything about it except go through an eviction. And you'll hear it from the experts. People who run the cons. So we go to your bank, you go in and get 6,000 cash, give us each 3,000, we give you this. Uh-huh. You go home and what you find out is cut up newspaper. It's fun to know how the trick is done. And that's what Scams and Cons is all about. Listen at scamsandcons.com or wherever fine podcasts are found. Have you ever felt that pang of disappointment when you couldn't add a ticket to your collection because it was digital? Or maybe you just lost it. Well, Stubforge.com is here to change that. Imagine this, tickets that not only look, but feel like the real deal. Because each ticket from Stubforge is printed on the same quality stock that Ticketmaster uses and printed with genuine ticket printers. 
It's like holding a piece of the concert, the game or the show right in your hands. But Stubforge isn't just about replacing tickets. With the easy-to-use interactive designer, you can create custom tickets for anything from concerts to sports games, pregnancy announcements or parties. Why not make your invitations stand out with tickets that are as unique as your event? And if you're trying to complete a back catalogue of missing tickets, Stubforge offers bulk discounts to make it both easy and affordable. With Stubforge, you can once more give your loved ones physical tickets and see their eyes light up instantly at the best gift you can give. So whether you're looking to reignite your ticket collection, craft the perfect gift, or send the coolest invites, head over to stubforge.com. Start creating today and see how Stubforge makes every ticket a story worth saving. Visit stubforge.com and start making tickets today. That is just chills down my spine and the thing about this is it wasn't that the perpetrator was anywhere near where the crime had happened by this stage either can you give us a bit of a idea of where he'd moved from yes so idaho is in the western part of the united states for those who are not familiar it is considered either mountain or pacific time depending on what part of the state you reside in moscow is in the northern part of the state Now, the perpetrator went home for the holidays to his parents' residence in eastern Pennsylvania, which is on the complete opposite side of the United States. He was on East Coast time. I mean, it is a several-day drive to get Mm -hmm. from Moscow, Idaho, which is right on the border of Washington State, all the way to the eastern side of Pennsylvania. You literally are almost going coast to coast there. Yes. I Google mapped it. 32 hours driving. You really are going across America. Let's talk about that evidence again. So when you look at the pieces of evidence that they built that case on, and they've made an arrest now, what are the key pieces of evidence? Well, we can talk about what we know, and then we can talk about what we can kind of read through the lines about based on the search warrant documents. First of all, what do we know? We know that the DNA on the knife sheath is huge. The defense attorneys for the perpetrator want to attack that because that DNA is in the residence. Now, I think what the defense attorneys will argue is, well, the perpetrator may have gone to a store and picked up this knife sheath. That doesn't mean that he bought it. Somebody else could have bought that knife sheath and stabbed these four victims. And it just so happened that because our client was previously shopping at the same location, his DNA is on it. I think we're going to hear an argument like that, trying to challenge that DNA. That's number one, but it's still huge evidence, especially when you put it in conjunction with the cell phone evidence and the Elantra. The perpetrator that's been arrested, his phone tracks to the location, it goes into airplane mode, and then it comes back on after the crime is committed and it moves in conjunction with his vehicle and his DNA there. That is the trilogy. So that is what the defense is going to attack. The Elantra car records, the videos of that car, the phone records, the phone geolocation data, the phone pings, and the DNA on the knife sheet. Now, we don't know. Is there other DNA in the house? Was there DNA found on any of the victims from the perpetrator? What will come out in the autopsy report? I think 
based on what we've heard, victim Zana Kernodal put up a huge fight. Mm-hmm. It will be interesting to see if any of the victims managed to get some DNA on their person, under their fingernails, from sweat from the perpetrator, from blood from the perpetrator. I think all of that will be interesting. It will also be interesting to see, do we have financial records, purchase records for a knife, for a knife sheath, for clothing, footwear, a mask that was seen by Dylan Mortensen, all of those kinds of things. Do we have the perpetrator buying those items? And then if they weren't found in his residence or at his parents' residence where he was visiting, well, where are they? Why were they disposed of? Where is this knife? Where is this Dickie's clothing that you have a receipt for? I also believe that there was a receipt taken for a mattress pad that was purchased. And to me, that is significant because I believe there is a possibility that a mattress pad may have been utilized either to cover the car seat in the Elantra when the perpetrator left the crime scene or perhaps to bundle up bloody clothing that could then be burned or disposed of. I did read that the tip line had something like 2,700 tips coming in. You think about 2,700 tips on top of all of the processing of the evidence. You're looking for needles in a haystack. You know, you've been in the FBI for however many years. Jodine, what does that aha moment feel like when you find a nugget in there that you think is a real pointing you in the right direction piece of evidence? When you get a hot lead, that's your eureka moment. It really does help because you're working around the clock on something like this. You know, it's maybe a four to six hour sleep and then you're right back at work because you don't know if this perpetrator is going to strike again before you make an arrest. So time is of the essence. But certainly in this case, they knew they had the DNA on the knife sheath. And of course, as the public, we didn't know that at the time. So that was, I believe, very encouraging to the investigators, knowing they had that secretly in their back pocket and that the public didn't know about it. But certainly the next big, big crucial lead was when a cop at the University of Washington State University in nearby Washington contacted Moscow police and said, there's a PhD student here that drives an Elantra. And when he ran the driver's license photograph, he had bushy eyebrows. And so to law enforcement, it was like, okay, let's take a look at this guy. And so that's when we start to see in early December, about two to three weeks after search warrants just start flying and they are getting phone records. They are looking into who is this guy? What do we know about him? And what's interesting is that they found this Reddit survey that the perpetrator had posted online. In his studies as a criminal justice student, he was studying the emotions of people who commit crimes. And he put this survey on Reddit wanting to know, well, if you had committed violent crimes, what did it feel like? What were your urges? How did you select your victims? You better believe when law enforcement saw that this guy had posted that online, that raised their antenna even more. Certainly, we now know, based on some of the 
online media interviews that have been given by students who were in the perpetrator's classes at Washington State University. They described him as very anti-female, very much harder on the female students than the male students, always wanted to be the smartest person in the room. He would start talking and just, you know, it would be 45 minutes later. It was all about him, him, him. Nobody was as smart as him in his view of himself. So it's very interesting to hear what people have to say about the perpetrator, Mm. what their interactions have been with him. He is described as having a very socially awkward history as far as dating, as far as personal interactions with other people. He has, based on postings that he allegedly made online as a teen, he has struggled quite a bit with his mental health and had an alleged heroin addiction. So there are certain factors in his history that are interesting. He also allegedly suffered from visual snow syndrome. And it's curious, did his depression result from his visual snow syndrome or did the visual snow syndrome result from his depression? It's what came first, the chicken or the egg. And there's debate on that. But certainly one of the things that has been alleged is that if you eat a vegan diet, that can, according to some, help with visual snow syndrome. Well, he is an alleged very strict vegan. And we know that two of the victims worked at a restaurant that had a number of vegan items on their menu. So that has raised the question, we don't know for sure, but did he patronize that restaurant? It was called the Mad Greek. It was very popular. It was near the college campus. Did he patronize that restaurant? And did he develop some sort of fixation on one of the two victims that worked at that restaurant? Tell me, what is visual snow syndrome? I mean, I've never heard of it. So it is, from what is described, it is like, instead of seeing a clear vision, you see speckled dots, almost like static. You just can't ever get a clear view of anything. And so it can be quite, quite difficult for those who suffer from that. But as I said, apparently or allegedly, he had been tested for what was causing this and doctors could not find any sort of physical reason why he was suffering from visual snow. So it has been alleged by some in the psychiatric field that perhaps the visual snow syndrome was a psychosomatic reaction to the fact that he did have underlying trauma and depression from his childhood. And therefore, he was kind of manufacturing it himself, has been alleged. Now, without without reviewing his medical files, we can only say that's a theory at this point. But it is certainly something to consider, you know, was there some sort of disturbance in his younger years? And he did in his younger years carry quite a lot of extra weight. He had lost over 100 pounds, has been alleged. And you can visually see he has lost quite a significant amount of weight from when he was a teenager. In fact, there are oftentimes now where I see pictures of the perpetrator and I think he looks rather gaunt. And of course, the weight loss is attributed to his very strict vegan diet. Now, did he do the vegan diet to lose weight or did he do the vegan diet for the visual snow? And are they interconnected? You know, they kind of go hand in hand there. But it appears also when you factor in 
a very questionable dating life. There have been women who have come forward that encountered the perpetrator in bars and that he would be rather described as a pest and wouldn't be able to take the hint, so to speak. There was another woman who came forward that said she actually met him online through a dating app, went on a date with him. And he was a little too touchy, like touching her shoulders, touching her elbows, and just kind of socially awkward. And she eventually fled to a bathroom and pretended to be sick. And then he eventually left. But it was just awkwardness. And he said to her something about her having nice childbearing hips or, you know, just awkward comments like that. So you wonder if he was frustrated over not having potentially the romantic relationship or social relationships he was potentially desiring. We don't know. It has been alleged by some, perhaps he was an incel, an involuntary celibate. We don't know enough yet to say definitively yes or no, but certainly that's not something that can be eliminated at this point. There are also allegations that he may have been online in chat rooms that discuss this investigation. And there is one chat room in particular where there is an online identity known as Papa Roger that garnered a lot of interest by other members of the chat room. I myself noted this character on this chat room and thought it was suspicious activity because this identity seemed to challenge what other members in the chat room were questioning and would offer up details that really only a killer would know, specifically the knife sheath being left behind. So people question, was the perpetrator Papa Roger in these chat rooms? We don't know, but we do know law enforcement has served Facebook meta with numerous search warrants. So they want to determine, was it in fact Papa Roger? If not, who was Papa Roger, who had this kind of knowledge, because it's a very odd thing for just a random person to speculate about. Mm -hmm. Uh, And remember, the knife sheath was kept uh, tight lid on. Nobody knew about that outside of law enforcement until we got to court in January and the probable cause affidavit was released. So I do think it would be interesting if, in fact, the perpetrator was Papa Roger and was engaging with the public through the chat rooms, was that sort of the signature in the way the Zodiac killer sent letters to San Francisco newspapers or the BTK killer sent letters to newspapers? And of course, another interesting link is that the perpetrator got his master's degree at a college in Pennsylvania where one of his professors is the renowned expert on the BTK killer. She literally interviewed the BTK killer and wrote the book about him. So it is questioned, did the perpetrator in this case model some of his behavior as a modern day BTK killer by going online and trying to pique interest as opposed to sending a traditional letter to a newspaper because newspapers aren't as prolific as they were certainly 20 years ago. Totally twist to the modern, isn't it? Yes. Now, we've alluded to the fact that he was at university, but it's an interesting aspect of this perpetrator that he was actually studying the criminology field. Yes, he had his master's degree in criminology, and he was at Washington State University as a PhD student and 
was student teaching there at the university and pursuing his PhD in criminology and had actually applied for an internship with Moscow Police Department and appeared based on essays that he had written wanted to help rural law enforcement with their technology in investigations, which is actually rather ironic, ironic. when you think about it, <laughs> I'm just you think th- about all the misdates with the cell phone. It's well, crazy to me to think that somebody who was studying criminology, and I mean, even that, that is just mind-blowing that he was talking about technology, and that's what's tripped him up along the way. Well, and you know, it's typical for criminals to either turn their phones off when they are in the commission of a crime or leave their phones at another location. It makes you wonder why wasn't that phone just left on a bedside table at home? Yeah. It really would have complicated law enforcement's efforts on identifying who, Mm. who committed this crime because that phone would have been in another location, you know? So I, think the fact, though, that the phone traveled from the perpetrator's residence to the proximity of the crime scene, then goes into airplane mode, then coincidentally goes back on 20 minutes after the commission of the crimes, and then is followed with the Elantra back to the residence of the perpetrator, that is some pretty impactful evidence. Circumstantial in nature, but very strong, especially when you pair it with the Elantra and the DNA on the knife sheath. Yeah. Well, let's hope that they get to stay in as evidence because when you take out one of those pieces of the puzzle, it would impact the case quite considerably, wouldn't it? Yes, it is. And now there is a huge hearing coming up August 18th, and there will be a number of issues addressed at this court hearing to include the investigative genetic genealogy. They want the entire indictment thrown out. They are challenging the grand jury indictment, charging the perpetrator with these crimes. There are a number of issues that need to be addressed at this hearing. And so technically, we're supposed to be in trial two weeks or two months, I'm sorry, from tomorrow. It's unclear if that October 2nd trial date will stand, especially if, in fact, the judge agrees to toss out the grand jury indictment and if the perpetrator is remanded back to a preliminary hearing. We'll just have to see what happens. But certainly the defense is doing their job representing their client. They are challenging everything. There are numerous pretrial motions. There are numerous motions, compelling discovery, challenging evidence. I think this perpetrator is getting a good defense and a dogged defense by his attorneys. We often talk about that pathway to violence with mass shooters in particular. But I'm interested to know if the same can be said, if there was any leakage beforehand, if there was points along the way that perhaps anyone might have come across some information that may have derailed him in the process. Or are we looking at a completely different psychology with this kind of killer? Well, it's very interesting because that has been asked about this perpetrator because It would be somewhat atypical to believe on their first commission of murder, they committed four. Now, was that always the plan? Was it just one victim that was intended and then someone else woke up and someone else walked in and was bringing their food to the kitchen? And, you know, was it intended to only be one murder and then became four? That is the question. But certainly 
did the perpetrator commit prior acts? We know there is an alleged heroin addiction in his past. There are people who have come forward that said, you know, I thought I was just giving him a ride home and it turned out he was utilizing me and my vehicle to take him to a drug buy. He would be very manipulative of things like that in the past. There was an incident several weeks ago where the parents of the perpetrator were called before a grand jury to testify in relation to a case involving a woman in Pennsylvania who her remains were found approximately in the past year or two. And so she disappeared and died under mysterious circumstances. And the parents of the perpetrator did testify. We don't know what that was all about, but certainly law enforcement in Pennsylvania, in other places this perpetrator has resided, is looking at their disappearances, at their unsolved murders, to see could there be crimes that this person committed in the past that we're just simply unaware of. I believe, in addition to law enforcement, rebuilding complete histories for each of the victims, what was their pattern of activity and where were they I think they are also rebuilding the history of the perpetrator to see where was he. Now, when he was getting his master's degree, that was online. It was during the pandemic. So typically online, you can be anywhere. Well, where was he? Where was he? Was he in Pennsylvania or was he out in Idaho and Washington? Was he in that area? We don't know those kinds of things, but certainly that's going to be interesting to see when and how he potentially crossed paths with these victims or what drew him out West. Why was that area selected to go to get your PhD? I think all of that is interesting, but certainly law enforcement is looking to see, are there other crimes that he may have committed prior to the homicides on November 13th, 2022? Would you expect that this would be somebody's first crime to go in with four murders or would you expect to see some kind of testing of the boundaries, some criminal record or what sort of behaviour would you be not surprised to see in his past? I think control. I think control is a big signature and with this perpetrator in particular, I think the stabbing is a dominance. And I believe one of the victims was the target. I don't think it was, let's just take out as many as possible. I do think there was one victim that particularly piqued the perpetrator's interest. Now, why that was, I don't know. It could be that one had particular physical attributes that he found some sort of sexual attraction towards. It could be one of the victims reminded him of another victim that was in another high-profile case that got a ton of media attention and he was attracted to, well, if I kill someone that looks similar, my case will also generate the same media attention. Did the perpetrator intend to kill four people? I believe the first two victims were up on the third floor, Kaylee and Maddie, because of that knife sheet. I believe, personally, because the knife sheath was found under Maddie's body, I believe that tends to indicate a strong likelihood she was most likely the first victim. 
Now, Kaylee wasn't supposed to be there that weekend. However, there were pictures of her on social media. So if the perpetrator was preparing to commit this act specifically on the early morning hours of the 13th, looking at the social media, he would have known Kaylee's back in town. She's here. So she was found in the same bedroom as Madison Mogan. Now, was she sleeping in there with Maddie? like friends do, having a sleepover, she's back in town? Or was she in the next room where her dog was found and she heard a commotion and then she came in and interrupted a crime and commission? That will have to wait for trial and for more details to come out. But we do know she was found on the same bed with Madison. It's just, we just don't know. Did her body fall there because she interrupted the crime and commission or was she sleeping in there with Maddie? We don't know that. But... Obviously, that's two murders right there where he may have only intended to commit one. You know, he may have thought, I can get in, get out, and maybe only one was intended. Then the perpetrator comes downstairs. And remember, Xana Kronodal's up watching TikTok videos, and she had just ordered DoorDash. We found the DoorDash bag on the kitchen counter. Had she just brought the food bag to the kitchen, turned around and runs into the perpetrator coming down from the third floor. Does she flee to her bedroom, thus leading the perpetrator towards her bedroom? And thus that is where she and Ethan are attacked. And is that why potentially we went from one intended victim now up to four? Is that a possibility? I think Mm -hmm. it needs to be considered. Ethan Chapin, that was a variable. You know, he doesn't reside there. It just so happened he was sleeping over that night. He didn't sleep over every night. So that was a variable that the killer could not have necessarily predicted or had 100 degree of certainty on that there would be a male sleeping over that night, Mm. particularly one the size of Ethan, because Ethan was a very tall young man. Mm. And then you take into consideration also that there were more people in the house. There was two more potential victims that weren't attacked. So, you know, you ask the question, then why stop there? He hadn't been rumbled by that stage. And that is a very, very good point, Sarah, because people said, well, Dylan saw him. Did he see Dylan? And that is also of debate because why leave her? Why leave her alive as a potential witness? I believe, given the fact of where her bedroom was located, given the fact that most likely her lights were out and that she wasn't backlit, I don't get the impression, based on what's in the probable cause affidavit, that she opened her door wide and said, hey, what's going on out here? I got the impression she peeked out. This was her third look out the door. She was getting uneasy. She thought something was going on. She was peeking out. I think by that time, the dog may have been barking. I believe potentially those roommates may have heard crying as was articulated in the probable cause affidavit. I believe they probably reached out to the victims on their cell phones. I believe they were trying to call them, text them. I think it's very possible the phones of the victims were ringing. They were pinging. And I believe it's potentially possible that the perpetrator knew someone's heard me. People are calling. There's These phones are going off. The dog is barking. I've got to get out of here. So did the perpetrator leave in haste 
Was he potentially exhausted after the exertion of four savage killings and in his haste move out of the residence in a quick flight and not see Dylan peeking out the door of her bedroom? I think that's possible. Do I think perhaps he was either unaware of Bethany on the first floor or simply just didn't have time to go down there? That's also a possibility, especially if the dog is barking. And if perhaps the victims cried out in pain, that's also a possibility. Was he afraid that there was too much noise going on? Our phones going off? I think all of those circumstances. Remember, I said control. Perpetrator can't yeah. control screens or, or phones or pings, text messages or a dog barking. I think all of that could have been why the perpetrator left and why the two roommates we're able to avoid just such a gruesome killing. And you think about that word control. You can't imagine that he hadn't been casing that house. He didn't just rock up to the house without any information beforehand. So the chances that he has not done his due diligence in terms of how many people are in that house seems a stretch as well. well a bit. And that's a good point because remember, Kaylee is back. Now the dog was Kaylee's. He may have looked on social media and said, okay, Kaylee's back in town, but that doesn't necessarily mean that she brought the dog back and the dog she shared with an ex-boyfriend. The dog mm -hmm. was half in the custody of the ex-boyfriend, so he may not have anticipated an animal in the house that night. Mm -hmm. That was a variable. Kaylee and Ethan were variables. They weren't supposed to be there. So that's another thing with, you know, all these premeditation drive-bys that we know from the probable cause affidavit where he was in proximity to the crime scene at least 12 times prior to the homicides, you know, there were variables that night that, you know, those 12 times he couldn't anticipate. And maybe he didn't check their social media that day. Maybe he didn't know Kaylee was back in town. We don't know who his focus was really on. Mm. I tend to lean toward Maddie, but again, I'm guessing. I think because that's where the knife sheath was, I tend to lean towards her. She also worked at the vegan restaurant right. with the vegan options. So I tend to lean towards her, but that's not definitive. We don't know and we won't know until we do, in fact, get to trial. When you say we'll know when we get to trial, we're going to be talking about motive in the trial. They don't have to present motive. Right. However, in murder cases, jurors want it. So they're going to lay out, okay, what do we think happened? And certainly when they look at those electronic footprints mm. of both the victim and of the perpetrator, they're going to overlay them like a Venn diagram. Oh. They're going to see, okay, where is the geolocation data of Madison Mogan? And does it ever marry up with the geolocation data of the perpetrator? And then they're going to see, okay, of the four victims, whose geolocation data married up the most because they are most probable the target. They're going to look at were their social media postings liked by him? If so, how many times did he use aliases to go online to stalk these victims? Did he try to communicate with these victims online? All those sorts of things. Did they meet on a dating app? Did any of the victims have any sort of, you know, dating profiles or any sort of online presence where the perpetrator may have come across photographs of them that interested him? 
And did he go back to these sites routinely and did he hit on their profiles in particular out of, say, a number of women's photographs? I think all of that will be looked at. Absolutely mind-blowing, isn't it? I hadn't even thought about that crossing over of the geolocations and being able to piece that back to actually a motive. So even if you've got a perpetrator that's not going to give you any information at all, that geolocation information can really focus in on a target. Absolutely. Now, as I said, the prosecutors don't have to present motive, but certainly the jurors are going to want to hear that. He was a criminology student. Were there certain serial killers that he was fascinated by? Does he have certain fantasies, perversions, fetishes? If so, was stabbing one of them? Does he get sexually gratified by blood? Did he take souvenirs? Was there anything missing? In one of the search warrants, I found it interesting where They not only articulated they were looking for prescription medications belonging to the perpetrator, but also to the victims. That indicated to me, okay, do they suspect that the perpetrator took a prescription belonging to one of the victims? I don't know, but that's something I question. I want to know these things. So I think all of that will be fascinating to hear when and if we get to trial. What do you expect the next steps to be and what will justice look like in this case? The big thing coming up is that August 18th hearing where the defense is trying to get the grand jury indictment of the perpetrator thrown out on the grounds that the grand jurors were not properly instructed. We'll see what the judge has to say about that. The state will be proffering their response to this filing in the next couple of weeks prior to this hearing. So we'll get to hear what the prosecution is saying about this argument and how they plan to challenge it. But obviously, that is the big key thing. Will this indictment stand? If it does, then we can proceed to trial, still set for October 2nd. If not, then it is anticipated that this will be remanded to a preliminary hearing, and then a preliminary hearing date will be set. And then at that time, Witnesses will be called to testify and there will be some evidence presented to a magistrate judge to establish probable cause to believe the perpetrator is in fact the person responsible for these four homicides. At any stage during this trial, will they bring in psychiatrists or expertise in terms of looking at his mental state? I do believe that is entirely possible, especially because they will do a deep forensic examination of his writings, his journals, that Reddit study that I mentioned. I do believe they could bring in experts to opine, okay, in conjunction with these writings, in conjunction with these viewing habits, here's the media or the different types of cases that he was fascinated by. Here's the collection photographs that he has on his media. I think all of that can be analyzed. And certainly, if they do find that he was, in fact, fascinated or wanted to model himself after particular killers or after particular modus operandi, I do believe the psychology could play a key factor in this case. I think we might have to do a little bit of an update recording. Oh, anytime, Sarah. You're a delight. I'd be happy to come back and join you. Brilliant. Well, thank you so much for joining me. I'm sorry that Catherine wasn't here. You've not met. I'm, did you ever cross we paths have not. when you're in the Bureau? I am unfamiliar with 
Catherine. So I look forward to uh, being introduced to her and talking with her. I love the fact that I'm the one that will be introducing these two <laughs> FBI queens. Amazing. Um, oh, thank you. Hey, tell me, where can listeners find everything about Jodine Weber? Yes, I am on patreon.com. My podcast is called Caught in My Web. It's a true crime podcast covering murders, mysteries, and cases capturing my attention. You can go to my website, jodineweber.com. I'm on Twitter at Jodine Weber and on Instagram at Weber Jodine. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. And uh, stay tuned because we'll definitely be talking again. Thank you, Sarah. Thanks for listening. And if you want to know more, Catherine's book, Stop the Killing, is out now. For more details, go to katherineschweit.com. Please consider also supporting our independently made podcast. It's simple to do. Go to patreon.com forward slash stop the killing. And for as little as the price of a latte a month, you can be part of the solution to stop the killing. Patreon rewards range from official do-gooder status to ad-free episodes, autographed books, and opportunities to connect with us directly for your business, school, church, or even just a book club chat. But just knowing that you are part of a movement that has the power to make your community safer, well, that's got to taste better than a skinny cappuccino any day. So please head to patreon.com forward slash stop the killing now and polish off your do-gooder halo and make sure to include your name so we can give you a shout out. This podcast is a community podcast production. That's con with an N. If you want more content, then head over to Community Podcast at Instagram, where you'll find trailers on more binge-worthy true crime, like the award-winning podcast Conning the Con. And check out our show notes for all the links mentioned. Finally, if you want one takeaway action that you can do right now that can help make our community safer, Please share, rate and review this podcast wherever you listen. Everybody needs to know that they hold the keys to see something and say something. Together, we can stop the killing. It's one of those things you hope never happens, but you better train for it. Because it will happen. And it will happen in places you wouldn't expect. Be ready for it. Hi, I'm Matt Harris. Seton Tucker and I host the podcast Impact of Influence, which for two years covered in depth Alec Murdoch, who was eventually convicted in 2023 of murdering his wife, Maggie, and son, Paul. That story continues to evolve, and we will cover that. Plus, we will tell you stories of other true crime events that have happened in the South. Please join us on Impact of Influence and give us a follow on the Impact of Influence Facebook page. Hi, this is Amy and Vanessa from She Goes by Jane, where we shine light on the stories of missing and unidentified women. On November 7th, we're sharing Nahida's story for the first time in a podcast. And this is a story that I thought I knew, but after reading police reports, became more complicated than I thought. When investigators are called to Nahida Khatib's house, everything looks fine. Her purse is on the kitchen table, her cup of coffee is on the counter, and her two-year-old niece is in her playpen. The only thing amiss? Nahida is missing. Every week, we feature a poem written in honor of the person we're talking about. This week, we're joined by one of our favorite actresses. You might know her from Sister Act or King of the Hill or The Descendants. But if you're like us, you'll know her from Hocus Pocus. She's the much-beloved Kathy Najimy. Join us November 7th to hear Nahida's story.